Hey, this is Reza. This is Sandy. Welcome to the Stone Cold Sober Podcast. Thanks for stopping by. Hello and welcome to the 233rd episode of the Stone Cold Sober Podcast. As how you feeling? Uh, feel like crap. We're we're only one day we're only one day removed from from our previous recording, where I was sick. Unfortunately, we we don't have the luxury of waiting that full week, where you know I go from sick to to healthy, but we're gonna grind it through. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, what's on your mind right now? Uh, I guess a lot of things. I mean, there's certainly the there's certainly work. Um, by the time we record our next episode, well, that's not true. Potentially. Yeah, that's just not true. Um, <laughs> by the time our next episode will air, I will have defended my PhD thesis, and I should be, you know, I guess a few forms away at the, at the very least at that point, uh, away from being a PhD or being a doctor. What do you? What but, do you mean forms? What do you mean? I mean, at that point, it's just like more. It's just uh, there's nothing more rigorous. There are no more rigorous trials that I would have to accomplish to to become a doctor. So right now I've given my committee a quote draft of my dissertation, which is, I'm opening it up right now, 135 pages um, of actual text. Too much. Of actual actual text and figures. It's 111 pages of substance. I guess the remaining 24 pages are like title pages, references, table of contents. Um, It's about 20 some thousand words. Um, but so they have that that quote draft, and I've refined it pretty heavily already. Um, we talked about that two episodes ago, and at this point they have that, and it's their responsibility over these next over the over the two weeks that I that I gave them um, between my between what I gave it to them and my defense, they have to read it and identify issues that they have with it. It's not really going to be issues of science, like oh we think the way that you did this experiment is garbage. We need you to redo it. Although I guess technically it they could call me out for something like that. Um, it's more likely that they'll say, hey, I don't like the way that you explained um, this. Like, I didn't get it. It didn't make sense to me. Or you just didn't do a good job explaining it. Um, so, you know, find some more sources, rewrite this section, stuff like that. Gotcha. Nothing major. Okay. Um, I was told by one of the more recent graduates from my lab that the ma- the most significant changes that they had him do, he, mm-hmm. had, um, he had modeled his dissertation off of another person who graduated from my lab and for the summary sections um like the at the end of his conclusions he had like summarized the major points that or the major um like features or or um findings that he had made in this chapter and he had done that in bullet points and his committee didn't like it so his committee was like yeah change that from bullet points to just a couple of paragraphs and you're, you're right. good so he's like that was the biggest change that they had him make which would take. It seems like, pretty minor, right? Exactly. So I don't know how much I can actually expect. How much of the actual text I can expect them to rigorous, rigorously investigate? But it's it's dependent on the person, you know. That's fair. Some professors may have the time, may have the um, just the kind of uh, what's what's the right word? Like, there's no real like guidebook for this, you know. There is no like standard way to, to grade these things that they need to adhere to. So it's kind of their personal. Um, preference or their personal uh, desire to provide some level of feedback and and um, actually read it through thoroughly. So I think some people just kind of skim it and 
just uh, as long as you have enough enough of your work is published, then I think they might be good with it. Other people might require a little bit more than that. So we'll see how that goes. But I don't think they'll have major. Ed- I don't. I don't think I will have major edits at that point. And so all I've okay. been doing today, in the last few days, aside from being sick and kind of like kicking it over the weekend instead of working, has been um, taking the slides that I presented in the past, updating them with some new images, some new some new results, and then today. I was just getting my script in my head. Like I don't have, I don't have like a, a perfect script. You know, like I'm not going to say the same thing over and over and over again until I'm reciting it. You know, word for word on the final day. But I have m- many key points that I want to hit, and the more I prepare for it for that presentation, the easier it'll be for me to kind of hit those points at this right time. Uh, so hit, to hit those points that I definitely want to mention and also be on time because I do have a time limit for this to get through everything. So that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Um, what has been the most rigorous thing so far with the editing that you've experienced? Um, honestly, the, 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 the whole process hasn't been terribly difficult. Like the, the hardest part is really be, has been because I still haven't finished that last project. Had I finished that project, it would have been a little bit easier, I think, for me to get everything onto the paper. Um, the The longest portion of my text is the project that I'm finishing right now, and that's partially because it's just not as refined as some of the other projects. So at some point over the next like two months, I'll be working on that project to get it published, and a lot of the text that I've been writing for the dissertation will be able to be utilized or at least... Uh, the skeleton of that structure should be able to be utilized on the paper. And I'm sure I'll find major sections that are just going to be slashed at that point. And so what I'm looking at right now starts at page 28 and it extends all the way to page 76. So I have, um, I have like what, 50 pages almost on this chapter. Right. And I think a lot of that, uh, and some of it's because like an image is too big like I have, I have multiple images, like Venn diagrams and stuff. I would definitely not try to publish all of those images. Mm-hmm. So I probably have like twelve pages of images at least, I think, in here. Several, several tables, but there's just certain things that would be completely cut from the paper. And had uh, had this section or this chapter been as refined as some of the other work that's published, then um, I think it would have been a little bit easier for me to get it all into the paper. In terms of the presentation for the defense. Uh, I did a lot. So I presented when I was interviewing for jobs, right? I presented some of this work to those companies. And I've also presented it um, to some of the students at, at, uh, at UD. So creating the presentation slides themselves also isn't ter- hasn't been terribly difficult because it's a lot of the slides that I've used in the past. I've been removing slots here and there that I feel like are, are, are just not the best use for my time. I have... I think 35 to 45 minutes. I can't remember what we decided on right now. I think it's 45 minutes max to present the material. And I have a lot of stuff that I need to cover in that time. So there's just certain figures, certain material that I'm just like, yeah, there's no point in saying that because it, you know, sure, sure it's extra information that people can get, but they're not going to miss the point of the story if it's not included. If they, gotcha. if they really want to know the story, they can read the paper or they can read the dissertation text itself and get everything there. So cool. I don't want to say anything has been like terribly difficult. It's really it's really just been like it's just a time consuming process. But the level of effort hasn't been like 
oh my god i can't get this done it's just like it's just grinding through you know yeah no you said that this chapter is like from uh pages like 28 to 74 yeah or 75 yeah uh, so I don't mean to sound like totally idiotic with this question, but is that like single space, double space? Like what? No, like, what, are we, what are we looking at right now? It's not idiotic at all. Uh, so the the it's double spaced um, first of all, and then there are also okay. ridiculously large margins. So because this these uh, because dissertations get um, bound, they have to have margins that are f- suitable to be bound. So your left margins are much larger than your right margins. So I'm trying to quickly find. Yeah, what are the margins? So the margins here, the uh, the left, so it's weird. The top margin is 1.13 inches, right? The bottom margin is 1.56 inches. The mm-hmm. left margin is 1.6 inches, and the right margin is 1.1 inches. If, oh, I see, with the binding on the left side. Yeah, exactly. So that way the text on the far left doesn't get cut off when it's all, you know, bound. Um, I don't know what the reasoning is for the top margin being so much bigger than the bottom margin, I guess, because you have page numbers on it. So there's a footer. So I guess that must be the reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, and, and it's it's difficult to say, you know, to give a page number and then have that equate to anything that's easily understandable for somebody because there's a lot of weird formatting and like chapter titles and page breaks and of course the images themselves some pages i have images and they have text around those images but then some pa- some pages the uh i have like back to back figures and so that forces the figures to be to only exist on a single pages themselves like they I, I couldn't fit two figures on the same page and so each figure gets its own page and there's a lot of white space on those pages but it's just how it has to be gotcha now do you feel comfortable talking about the uh the dissertation itself and its contents um like to talk Probably about on the podcast yeah i don't know how well i could summarize everything you have 90 seconds this is this is what my 45 minute presentation's about i gotta, uh, I gotta basically well like tell wait, the story. do you feel comfortable talking about it for a little bit yeah sure so uh what is the title of your dissertation just like on mm-hmm. sort of just the way it reads right now. Yeah, we cut it down. This is this is it in its final stage because this has to be. This was submitted to the grad office um, for the uh, the graduation program. It's called Bioinformatics Tools to Classify and Characterize Plant Small RNAs. Okay, say that one more time. Yep, it's Bioinformatics Tools to Classify uh-huh. and Characterize Plant Small RNAs. Okay, so is the idea here just so I can try and figure out what's going on? Yep. And try and like you read it. So we'll try and do the same. Like you read it to me based on what you're saying. Yeah. And I'll try uh, echo it back to you from like a not not necessarily like a layman's terms type of thing, but like from someone who isn't in your field, but right. has like a tangential sort of uh, connection to technology. How about that? Okay. What well, technology that you use? So bioinformatics tools that are used to characterize, categorize, categorize and characterize. Classi- classify and, cate- and characterize. Classify and characterize. Uh, what RNAs? Plant small RNAs. Plant small RNAs? Yeah. So is this the idea that like you're creating some sort of like digital tool set uh, to basically uh, in some sort of database or whatever sort of... Uh, content management system thing that you've got going on mm-hmm. uh in a sort of a, a procedure or a tool that will be able to take 
like these inbound, like let's just say hypothetically unclassified plant small RNAs, yeah, and then characterize them and classify them. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. All right. So the uh, the bioinformatics aspect of it is really just this data analysis um, working with so like the root the root you know the bio part just the biological mm -hmm. data then the informatics which is a word I think that's been getting thrown around a lot more more a lot more frequently recently um, you'll hear cheminformatics so just chem an analysis of the chemistry data but then um, informatics of financial data um, you know big data so the general idea is when I when I when I talk to when I talk about what I do to um, people outside of the field of science or even outside of the field of biology, I just say that I analyze genetic data with computers because that's more or less that's more or less what I do on a day to day basis. Gotcha. And um, the 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 significance of this classify and characterize we when you when you sequence data. So the human genome was sequenced in uh, I think it was finished in two thousand and. And one, I literally just actually I have this in my dissertation. What a great time to be alive! I know, right? So here we go. This is this is this is straight from my. Um, we survived Y two K. We're sequencing <laughs> the human genome. I, I actually wrote this in my disc in my uh, conclusions chapter. This is how I open it. Says, it says, <clears throat> the human genome project was initiated in 1990 by the NIH, that's the National Institute of Health, and the DOE Department of Energy. The first drafts of the human genome were completed in 2001, so that's 11 years, and the project was, de was declared complete in April of 2003, with a total cost of nearly $3 billion. So since that time, um, the amount of time, the amount of money that it costs to sequence genomes has been slashed significantly. I can't give you specific numbers on how much it would cost to sequence a whole genome, but what you can do, and what we work with, is um, RNA data. So you can get a profile, a snapshot of all the RNAs. And in our case, we're interested in what are called small RNAs, which are non-coding RNAs. I'll tell you what that means in a second. But we could take a snapshot of this entire population of small RNAs in a group of cells or a, mm -hmm. a cluster of like tissue. So you might just take a, a leaf or two. I'm not even sure how much uh, tissue is required to do, these, um, to do the sequencing. But you take a uh, like say a leaf or uh, a bunch of pollen or whatever it might be. You kind of grind it up and you you get a and then you sequence it and you get an idea of what the total population of these small RNAs is in this um, in that group of cells. Um, and when I say non-coding RNA, what I mean by that is um, so you know like there's there's DNA, there's RNA, and there's protein. So typically you start with just what's the DNA? That's the the nucleotides A C G T. And then there's mm -hmm. there's RNA, which um, is ACGU, where uh, the U is uracil, and then um, that the RNAs are translated into proteins, which do everything. That you know, it, it determines your eye color, fingernails, like every feature on every organism, you know, plants, humans, animals, whatever, and so. Small RNAs don't code for proteins. What small RNAs do is actually suppress genes. So they, they basically, they effectively prevent um, accumulation or production of a protein. And this can happen in multiple places along this pathway, either before the DNA even creates um, an RNA or before the RNA is able to create a protein. It can silence the production that way. Um, and so when we do these, when we get this snapshot of the RNAs that are present in these data sets, um, you generate millions of unique sequences. 
And the issue is, once you've done that, you have uh, the, what we sequence, we, they're typically between 18 and 34 nucleotides in length. Most classes of small RNAs that we're interested in are between uh, about 20 to 24 nucleotides in length. I don't even know what the number of unique sequences in that size class would typically be, but it's hundreds of thousands of unique sequences. And in this class of 18 or in, in 20 to 24, there are very distinct groups of small RNA classes that function in very distinct ways and that are produced in very distinct ways. And so when you take the snapshot, you, it's impossible to say, oh, this one right here, this specific sequence of 20 nucleotides is a microRNA. And this sequence of 22 nucleotides, this is a short interfering RNA. It's, it's impossible to do that without computational tools or without further biological uh, experimentation. And so what I've done is create a set of tools to try to make it easier for biologists or even bioinformaticians to make these determinations from this snapshot of data. Mm -hmm. And how helpful will this new tool be uh, from sort of the status quo to you sort of sharing this with the world? Tough to say. It depends on, there's, there's from my experience, just speaking with, um, like when I was, you know, job hunting, speaking with different companies, it actually seemed like there were some companies that were interested in trying to find some practical use of um, maybe not the tool that I was generating, but the actual biology behind the, so like the, so we'll, we'll, I'll talk specific. So one of the tools that I've, that I've created um, strives to identify microRNAs. It's a specific class of small RNAs, which are very abundant, but in terms of their distinct sequences, there are only a few hundred that are present out of uh, maybe like say a million in this in this small RNA in this uh, the small RNA data set. So again, you got like say a million, two million distinct sequences, and only like 200, 300 of those belong to that class of microRNA. And one of the companies they were trying to think of ways that they could potentially utilize um, microRNAs to try to silence potential genes of interest. So I would think that there's some potential application in that aspect, but it's difficult to think about, at least in my specific field, the broad implications outside of my lab. Like I don't, I tend, it's very contrary to how you think in industry. You're often trying to, you know, you're often trying to think of a bottom line. Okay, well, how, how widespread is this going to be? Is this going to be used? Of course, I want my, of course, I want my tool to be used, but mm -hmm there's a there there are certain levels of of luck that that are involved whether people find your paper whether it people find your tool easily easy to use um i i would hope that it would become one of the more popular tools to predict microRNAs but i have no way of knowing that at this time okay okay and what made you want to uh approach this problem and offer a solution oh man so all of these so i have a i have a, a computer science background um okay and as a bioinformatician who has a computer science background typically i'm brought on projects to help with a specific type of data analysis to get from some level of raw data to some practical results and so this might involve utilizing tools that already exist that a biologist might not know how to run because it requires some level of understanding of some programming tool, or it might require that I develop some new tool or query some database or whatever it may be. 
in the case of every project that I've worked on that I've discussed in my dissertation, um, the tool that I developed was initially developed kind of as a one-off tool. And it, because it was so useful or because I thought it deserved a life of its own, I was able to spin it off onto its own. Um, it, it's simplifying it a little bit, but that's kind of how these things go. Mm-hmm. Generally, especially since I work in a lab under a biologist, um, I find that these projects have some initial motivation because there's a very specific biological question that we want to answer. Mm-hmm. And I've developed a tool that answers that specific question. But because I have a computational background, this is one of the points that I want to hit on it during my presentation of my, for my defense. I want to hit on this point. A lot of biologists, when, when, I, when I tell them how I did this analysis, they couldn't care less whether the, the analysis, whether this, like, say I wrote a new tool for them, right? Mm-hmm. They couldn't care less if the program took a day to run or if it took an hour to run. Now They just want something to run. Yeah, they just need the results. They don't care how long it takes. I mean, everyone wants the data ASAP, right? Everyone wants the right, data immediately. Right. But when you're, when you're outsourcing this analysis to somebody else and it's already taking a week, whether they get the data an hour earlier, or I'm sorry, I guess 23 hours earlier in one case and then the other case, they, don't, they couldn't care less. They just want the results. But for me, having a computational background, when I develop tools, I oftentimes am thinking about how to develop these tools um, with efficiency in mind um, to make sure that I'm not wasting computational resources. I'm not, I'm not performing things. I'm, do- I'm doing things in a manner that is reasonable for a computer to like actually do, you know, I, I don't want to brute force everything. Um, Fair enough. When, when you, when you think about like developing a, a piece of software, a, uh, uh, a piece of code, there are a number of ways that you can answer. You can, that you can set about answering a task or, or performing a task. Um, if I asked you, if I asked you to write a program that, um, sorts a list of elements. You know, if if I had if you had a list from numbers one through ten in an unsorted manner, if I asked you to write a program to sort those, there are a number of different ways that you can do it, and some are a lot faster than others. But if it's only between one and ten, it doesn't really matter. The slowest method that you could think of to do between numbers one through ten might not be noticeable, right? Like one way might one way might be, and this is like the simplest version of sort that you could do is um, bubble sort. And basically what you do is you say, okay, I have a list of 10 numbers, right? Um, I'm not going to like come up with a random assortment of numbers, but I just have a list of 10 numbers. And let's say the first two numbers are six and three. How do you, how does the computer know where six belongs in this, in this, in this number line? The computer doesn't really know, oh, there's, there's numbers one through 10 because the numbers could be one through 20, but skip every you know skip two numbers so it doesn't know it doesn't have an idea of where it truly belongs until it's investigated everything and so what you could do is what's called bubble sort and you could say okay investigate the first two elements of this list and you say okay i got six in the first position and three in the second position well six is bigger than three so we need to swap those two so that's what happens you swap the two and you say okay now three is in the first position and six is in the second position and then you say, okay, well, let me look at uh, the, sec- the second position and the third position. You say, well, I got six and I got seven. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, seven's bigger than six. So seven's going to stay there or six is going to stay there for now. We're going to look at seven and the next one. And you just keep going on down that list. And you have to keep iterating through this entire list and just keep swapping numbers back and forth until you eventually you get one through 10. Now, this is a, 
when you think about the number of passes that you have to go through, because at most you can only move, um, you're, you're only really working with two numbers at a time and you're never really finding the proper position for a number until you complete all passes. And you can, there, there are really cool visual representations of this type of sorting that you can, that you can find online. I think I'm actually going to try to find it for you and maybe I'll put it oh, in, the, in the, uh, the notes. Um, Yeah, the uh, I'm just asking these questions because you know it sounds like you've sort of on not unofficially or whatever, but the approach that you've taken to this is very similar to like product development. Yeah, uh, that I'm sort of in. Uh, now, granted, I'm on the product design side of things. Yeah, but it's just very interesting to hear your process of like identifying. Uh, a problem where you were doing one thing and then you created a tool to sort of expedite a certain process and you found out that I got it. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you identified a certain process that could be sort of improved, right, or optimized. And then you created this tool to first sort of help your immediate sort of world improve. And then you're sort of finding out that there might be a, a greater use for this. Yeah. I actually just sent you the specific time link of bubble sort what I was just describing to you, where you see okay. like one element going at a time. Yeah. Um, and so, so there is a natural like limit. Yeah. So I think the way I described bubble sort wasn't wasn't quite wasn't completely accurate. The, the general idea of bubble sort you want to find the the biggest number every single pass. So in that case, you're looking. We saw the number six, right? Um, and you were able to work so basically what you do is you start with that first number and, and you're working through this entire list of 10 numbers and you're basically looking for the biggest number. And once you find 10, you put that at the very end and then you start back at the beginning and you're looking for the next biggest number, which would be nine. And you look for that and then you put it at the end. Um, but so yeah, like when, if you were to do that with say just 10 numbers, it's a pretty quick process. But if you were to scale that up to say a million numbers, a million elements, that's a lot of comparisons and it's a highly inefficient program at that point and you want to think of different algorithms to use to perform that to to perform that um that process and if you were to watch this video you'll see how many different comparisons are made and how long a process it takes to get these elements in order as compared to like the first few sorting out al algorithms in, in this video which are much quicker so gotcha so um that's kind of the, those are kind of the things that i think about when it can't when it comes to doing this and while a biologist of course might not care and i understand why they wouldn't care for their specific case they don't care that i that i uh that the program took an hour to run as compared to a, a day however when i think about these tools i want them to be reused in the future right like while i certainly am not thinking these are the specific applications that i want my program to be utilized in I certainly do want it to be future proof to a certain extent. And so for that to be the case, I need this program to be scalable. So for some of the smaller genomes that we work with, for some of the smaller um, like sequenced genomes that we work with, the model plant organism is, is a rabidopsis. And I think it has a, um, I think it has 300 million total nucleotides in the DNA sequence of that. Okay. And if it takes, let's say it takes a day to run a program yeah. on that. That's fine. Okay. It takes a day. Right. But then, say oh i want to analyze maize or corn that's one of the organisms that i work with primarily that genome is about seven times the size of a rabbitopsis i think it's i think it's 2.1 billion 
nucleotides or 2.1 oh gigabases is what we describe it as. And if your if your program's um, complexity or runtime scales linearly with that genome size, and I'm not saying that this these particular programs do, but just for the sake of the example, that's going to mean your program will take seven times as long to run right. the analysis on maize. Now it's taking seven oh days, God. right? And then you can scale that up even further because maize isn't the biggest organism. It's not the biggest genome. So something like wheat has a genome size of 12 gigabases, I think. Oh, my so God. So that's six Stop. times the size of maize. So now, if again, assuming your programming program scales linearly, it's now going to take 42 days. And imagine, Stop it. What's running on foot's <laughs> taking 42 days to run? So, so like... If you're, there's a number of issues that could go, you know, if something's taking 42 days to run, it's not a good look, but it can happen because some people don't future-proof their programs. And the programs that were developed, you know, five, 10 years ago, they didn't really, you, you may have not anticipated or even considered the case of having to run on maze or something even bigger than that. And that's fine. Like, again, it's fine. It can work for what, it can work for what the, or the, it can work for the technology that you have available today. And I'm sure that the tool that I'm developing now, while it's quick for, by today's standards, it might not be quick, you know, five, 10 years from now. But those are the types of things that I try to think about when it comes to developing these computational tools. And that's what I would hope that would make this tool um, heavily utilized because it has the capability. It not just has the capability of, of running on these, these larger organisms, these larger genomes uh, with, much more, with much more data, but I've also tried to be extremely mindful about the accuracy of its results. Because some things, like in this particular field, when it comes to predicting a, uh, a microRNA from this data set, like I said, it could be like a million unique sequences, and mm -hmm. only 300 of those should be classified as a microRNA. How do you determine what is real and what is not? Yeah. It's not like it, it's, it's extremely difficult to say that this is, in fact, real and this is in fact uh, not real it's you you can never know the right answer like you would if you were to look at say an array of numbers and say okay well you know this is one through ten you know perfect it's, it's exactly what i expect so um there's like all sorts of different techniques that you can utilize like machine learning um artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. i don't i don't take advantage of any of these types of things although i why not i've mentioned too much work it wasn't um it wasn't the in the initial scope of the project when i began i was utilizing okay. a specific set of rules because no other tool utilized these rules at the time that were that were published about a year a uh, year and a half ago now that's fair um but i would argue that you could get better rules if you were to utilize something like machine learning um before yeah. even developing something like this now yeah but the effort uh, was sort of not in line with either, like you said, the scope originally, yeah, or the uh, the output you're saying for this particular project. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in gotcha. my case, I think I would have needed, I almost needed the experience of doing this and 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 being like heavily, you know, just like elbows deep in the data to truly understand the benefits that I could have gotten from doing something like machine learning. Um. But but yeah, so. That's kind of that's kind of the idea. We want you we it when you take that snapshot. It, I, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of a proper uh, analogy. Um, but when you take that snapshot, you have no idea where anything came from. You've right. You don't know where you don't know where things came from. You don't know where they really belong. You don't know how these were created. And while we can do these computational predictions, at the end of the day, a lot of times the only way to really validate these predictions is to perform some specific biological um, experiment to confirm that gotcha. status. But 
um, by being able to accurately or, or relatively accurately pr- predict, it gives it gives uh, the the idea is that it gives the biologist just another set of tools in their toolbox to be able to um, help their analyses, help reduce the the amount of work that's required for them to make accurate predictions in their yeah. in their uh, in their projects. Now. I know you said that like there were additional avenues that you could have gone down, but you chose not to go down mm-hmm. for this particular project. Yeah. Do you foresee uh, any uh, updates to this project after you've successfully defended your thesis? Um, do you f- or do you sort of see uh, this project coming to a natural end and just sharing it with the world? So it's it's on my GitHub page, which is a uh, a version control. So Git is a version control tool. Um, mm-hmm. And GitHub is a website where people can access that the the, the, the code that you've published. Yep. It's technically available, although nobody's downloaded it because it's I haven't like linked to it or anything anywhere. I haven't actually published a paper for it. But I have a set of like ideas that I've listed in my future directions that I won't have the time to to take on unless I like unless I'm just really I get really passionate and excited about it mm-hmm. and I would want to work on it during my free time. I can't see, I can't see myself doing that work. My hope, though, is that the way that I've developed this, um, in terms of like the documentation for running it, uh, as well as the comments, the documentation in the code, I hope that it's clear enough for, for potential future developers or future bioinformaticians who join my lab to be able to modify it and update it to utilize some of those ideas that I that I've had, things like machine learning. Um, and when it comes to machine learning too, it doesn't even have to be, it doesn't even have to be um, forced into this specific project. Like you don't have to add machine learning to the code of this specific tool. Mm-hmm. It could be utilized by analyzing a set of data and trying to build a new set or better set of rules than what I used myself. Now, gotcha. if you want to add new rules that it adds a layer of complexity that might have to be added to the program, but you could just use the same rules that that uh, these two biologists had, have described and try to get uh, even better numbers than what they have described. And if you could do that, then it's just a simple matter of tweaking a number here and there within my code. But um, yeah, I, I would hope that I would hope that some of the some of the ideas that I've that I have are intriguing enough for people to uh, to take and use because like I don't have any while well, like I I uh, like I just don't feel super protective you know I I don't I don't have any rights to the to the tool anyway like to the code you know it's it's public so anybody really could could modify it and use it as they need although I don't think anyone could like take the code republish it with some minor tweaks here and there and say it's their own. I don't think they can necessarily do that, but um, I, I certainly want people to be able to to modify and, and improve it if if uh, if it can be done. Because I certainly don't see myself really having the time to do that. Fair enough. All right. Well, hey, that's a really appreciate you sort of diving in like a very very sort of shallow yeah uh, end of, of this. Just one um, project, man. That was just one. <laughs> yeah. No, I get it, man. Like, yeah. Uh, these big things have small beginnings and sometimes uh when you're in the thick of it you you know it's uh it can be hard to tell the uh the forest from the trees right and i think that's something that you're sort of potentially maybe seeing with the going through the edit process yeah like oh man like when you step back and you sort of see like your your work 
uh, from like page one, it mm-hmm. seems like a forest, but then when you start to like really like edit everything and start to cull through everything, you're like oh man, it's actually uh, it's actually quite a bit here. Right. It's really exciting. Yeah. Um, did you want to talk quickly about the finale, the series finale of Game of Thrones? Um, well, I was wondering, do you want to save that, or do you uh, want to? I guess we could talk about. Uh, I guess so. I guess we could give people a time to listen to it or, or listen to to watch the episode. Give a yeah, two, why don't we do two weeks since it since the, all right. We all can right. do two weeks, and then we can sort of figure out like, does yeah. our emotion still hold? Like, do our points of view still hold? You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds good. All right, cool. All right, so we'll Great. close it off here then. Yeah, let's do that. All right, I'm Reza. I'm Sandy. Thanks so much for listening. See you guys next week.